Hello and welcome back to ASD, A New Perspective, a podcast show where we help you understand the mind of your child. And we encourage you that growth for your child is possible. Now this week, Dr. Gutstein explains to us a divide existing between autism research and clinical intervention. Let me just tell you one divide between research and the clinical world. The research world is, is trying to remain in parallel or in pace with the field of developmental psychology. Okay, and it, it, the people who are doing that research now are very are, are trained in development and developmental psychology has focused on mental development of the child right mental and self-development um, th- there are no behaviorists pure behaviorists in developmental psychology there are none uh, the influence of behaviorism vanished maybe 40 40 years ago <laughs> if, if more not more so What's happened is that the research has focused, as it should, on in autism, on trying to understand the early mental, uh, let me add one more part, and neural, because there's a, a, a large neuro, developmental neuroscience emphasis as well in, in terms of autism, and blending those together, looking at the early neural vulnerabilities that might result in the cognitive, metacognitive, intersubjective, what we call the mental and self vulnerabilities, deficits, impairments that we see later on down the line and how that occurs and looking at the developmental process. And they've also been very influenced, as development is, by the role of the social environment, the what's called the social-cultural model of development, which emphasizes the role of the family and parents and guides um, and tries to look at this mutual influence process that goes on between infants and parents and develop in developing a relationship and how that emerges and how that progresses and how important that is. So those have been the influences on the autism researchers, and it's paid off in some very interesting research, both when we look at infancy and toddlers who are uh, on the road to autism, and then we look what we call downstream in terms of the impairments that really um, create obstacles for even the highest functioning people with autism in terms of real world functioning. And we're getting a much better handle on that. Now, to contrast that, the clinical world since the 1980s, I would say, has been dominated by um, what we might call radical behaviorism, which was initially formulated by B.F. Skinner and such. And while that has fallen completely out of favor in really the rest of psychology, whether that's industrial, clinical, developmental, you name it, it has um, has really been a dominant force and continues to be a dominant force in, um, in the field of clinical intervention in autism. And so when people talk about early intervention, when they talk about skills, and even when they talk about things that sound like cognitive mental skills, they're really using a behaviorist approach. And they're trying to um, sort of decompose everything to outward behavior. And also emphasizing another emphasis, let me just put another emphasis that's very interesting, another distinction, 
is the issue when you're a behaviorist, you think about external, we call operant reinforcement. Some behaviorists may um, even explore um, uh, classical conditioning, <laughs> but it's external. The field of developmental psychology and clinical psychology, and interestingly enough, in industrial or you know um, organizational psychology, the main areas have, in the last, I'd say, 30 years, focused almost entirely on what we call intrinsic motivation, which which are the basic universal human drives for agency, for increasing influence in your life, for growth, um, and for relatedness. And so again, we see this complete divergence where on the one hand, what we see in the autism research literature is more of an emphasis on trying to understand the failure of those basic motivations to emerge which is and how important that is and a complete neglect in the clinical area. So I think the main issue is that the clinical area has been dominated by a, a very small group of people compared to the larger population of psychologists and, and such and, and you know, developmentalists, neuroscientists, philosophers, people who work on development and trying to understand development and clinical work. Um, it's dominated by this very small group of psychologists and behavior analysts, whatever that means, who hold on to this very rigid, uh, static uh, model of uh, which has been thrown at, which has been, you know, obsolete in every other area of psychology for 50 years. Mm -hmm. And until that political dominance and economic dominance is overturned, things aren't going to change very much. On one hand, we talk about, and this is where the research is heading and our model is heading as well, is the need to um, promote the emergence of this intrinsic motivation that we see so much of ASD early and also downstream later on as a what we could call a motivational impairment. And, you know, the more we emphasize external motivation, the more we emphasize the experiences that aren't necessarily growth promoting, but that result in external motivation, the more we are actually creating obstructions, obstacles to the development of intrinsic motivation, which we know is, you know, a major impairment all, all through, you know, life. The, 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 the desire for, for mastery and persistence and the resilience and the, the, um, the, the need for growth and to expand your environment and for relatedness um, the feelings of agency and feelings of competence and self-efficacy that are incredibly handicapping to children, adolescents, and adults with autism and are one of the reasons why the psychiatric disorder rate amongst people with autism is over 75%. Um, and the suicide rate among high-functioning people with autism is six times at least, if not more, the the, the rate of their typically developing peers. Um, you know, serious, serious issues. But once again, um, you know, the clinical model is not, is, is not evidence-based, right? The clinical work that's going on has no evidence of its efficacy. If we look at evidence for this disorder, as any rational person would, 
be terms of anything that would be improving the quality of life of a person with ASD, whether that be increasing their friendships, increasing um, their ability to live independently, to function independently, increasing their ability to um, to get to gain employment, um, and if we you know if we bring it down, we could bring it down to children or adolescents. But there are very clear things in the real world that are indicators of success, effectiveness, quality of life. None of those. None of those um, are used to demonstrate the effectiveness of these radical behaviorist treatments. Instead, they use um, the, so self-fulfilling measures, things that they teach, items on uh, an intelligence test that they teach the child to perform, or on a speech you know, development scale that they teach the child through rote teaching to perform. So they sort of you know, use that as, a, as an element of success, which is not evidence-based. It's a self-fulfilling circular problem. It's really a, a false, a pseudo-evidence that any scientist would, would tell you about. You don't just test something that you, you, know, you teach and assume that that has any external validity. There's no external validity. Thank you so much, Dr. Gutstein. And thank you for joining us for ASD, A New Perspective the podcast where we help you understand what is going on in the mind of your child. And join us in the continued journey as we encourage you that growth is possible. I'm your host, Kat Lee. See you next time.